When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Thank you so much for joining. I mean, I I really wish I could do these in person more. Um, and you're you're in Santa Monica, which is like 20 minutes from my house in California. So maybe we can do a follow up. I would love it. Now, when did you come out with? You know, I like your title because I know you know. I'll teach you to be rich. You're going to get 80 percent of people, I think, or more, going. Oh yeah, dollars. But really, when you start diving into your content, it's it's sort of the bigger conversation about, um, and I loved how you you talk about, um, you know, different lenses, money lenses that people, um, are, you know, use or actually don't use, right? You, you talk a lot about cost and we'll get into that. But what I really appreciate about what you're doing is you're saying, yes, okay, we'll break it down in percentages on what you should do in savings and investment. But it's also the the bigger question about how we approach money in relationship to ourselves. And so um, your book title is, I will teach you to be rich, but within that there's, there's sort of a much more layered conversation. Well, I appreciate you saying that the first question people say is uh, okay, tell me about the dollars because really when people hear the title, I will teach you to be rich. Most of them say, this sounds like a scam. And I get that. And that's the reason that I take pains, even in the first two pages, to talk about what does rich mean? Because it's different for you versus for me. And it also changes over time. When I was 22, or early early on, um, rich to me was being able to go to a restaurant and order appetizers. And that's cheap, but it's meaningful because when I was a kid growing up, uh, we didn't order appetizers. In fact, we ate out once every six weeks. We would take a coupon, go to a pizza place. And, and so growing up now, I can go to a restaurant and if I'm looking at something that looks good and I say, ooh, should I get this or that? Sometimes I can say, you know what? Let me just get both. And that's abundance, even though it's 10 or 20 bucks. You know, as life goes on, our rich life changes and it expands. And whether you have children or you want to travel more, you decide you want to donate 
heavily and get involved in philanthropy. Those are great. I also want to add, uh, you know, in the personal finance world, there are just so many people whose entire personal finance worldview is about one word, and that word is no. They tell you, no, you can't spend money on lattes. No, you can't go on vacation. No, you can't buy jeans. No, no, no. Just sit in your room and just vegetate until you're 85. Right. I don't, who wants to live that life? So to me, rich is about spending extravagantly on the things you love. And I mean that extravagantly. We can talk about that. Whether it's a beautiful coat or a business class ticket, whatever, a car, whatever it may be, uh, beautiful food that you want to feel great, but cutting costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Yeah, I love how I, I was you know, and doing my homework, it's like any flight over four hours, that's on, that's on your, your sort of 10 for you. Um, you're going to go into business and, you know, I'm six, three. And so when the minute I started working, I was like, listen, I don't need baubles, but you know, big air, big seats and room is, is a big thing. And, and, um, you know, I personally grew up really, really modestly. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing after exploring what your message is that I have to look at, I was looking at myself in relationship to this. Like I've always said, I, I don't mind spending money. I don't like wasting money. And I, and it, because it feels, I don't want to say it feels irresponsible, but it, I, you know, you saying, Hey, a beautiful code or, or a trip or things like that. These are either things that bring you great real joy and um, or experiences. But the idea of wasting money, uh, I think especially as you start to make maybe a little more feels, um, I don't know what the word is. It feels either like you've become unconscious or you've gone to sleep, you, you know what I mean? So it's like, let, maybe let's back it up and, and go, I want to talk a lot about the lenses that you talk about, you know, results and, um, uh, you know, things like that and cost and uh, sort of the more popular ones. And then I want to kind of tie that into the mythologies that we've all bought into, because it is, it's a very interesting thing where we're all driven biologically by survival, the dollars wrapped up into that. Um, and then, you know, you sort of, you're striving and then all of a sudden you feel weird and guilty and shame around if you accumulate. Um, so, may, so maybe we can just break it down first into when people are, are sort of evaluating situations, what are these lenses that, they're, that are commonly used? Well, um, first off, we grow up with something I call invisible scripts. And we've all heard some of these phrases and we've heard them and we start to believe them. And they're so invisible and sometimes insidious that we don't even realize they may or may not be true. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm the son of Indian immigrants. Indian people love education. We love it. So in our culture, we believe education is a good thing. And I think that's a really positive, invisible script. Okay. Um, growing up in America, we hear phrases like, uh, don't throw money away on rent. And so we start to believe it that, oh, you're throwing money away on rent. But most of us have never actually run the numbers and realize actually renting can be a great deal. And buying is not always the best financial decision. So this is an invisible script where you start to see lots of people, particularly as they become married, maybe get to their 30s, they start saying, I need to buy a house. And you ask them why. 
And their answer to the most complex, sophisticated financial decision of their life is, it's an aphorism. I don't want to throw money away on rent. They don't know the math. All they're doing is just throwing out something that their parents and grandparents said. So we first need to start understanding our invisible scripts. What do we believe about money? A good way to think about that is, what money messages did you absorb when you were five years old sitting around the dinner table? Was it mom or dad or mom and dad saying, we don't talk about money in this family? Or was it them saying, easy come, easy go? Or those invisible scripts that we grow up with. Then let's talk about how we view the world. Imagine you have a pair of eyeglasses and you put them on in the world through these lenses. And one of the lenses, the most primary lens that we use in America is cost. How much does it cost? Well, I'm going to pick a gym. How much does it cost? I'm going to buy a car. How much does it cost? It's always cost, cost, cost. And that's good, especially when you're starting out, you may not have enough money. You may be very cost or price sensitive. But guess what? That's not the only money lens to use. That would be like a musician only playing one note. They don't have any range. So there are other money lenses to look at the world through. We can look at it through convenience. Why, for example, might someone pay valet to have their car you know, driven and parked for them? Security. Um, if, if I wanna buy a car and I wanna make sure my family is safe, I might pay a little extra. Um, speed or results. You know what? I could probably work out finding some free workouts on YouTube, or I could hire a trainer who can focus me on my form and on and on and on. There's so many different money lenses, but most of us only think about cost, therefore leaving us very one dimensional. Well, don't you ever feel like also I, I have to watch this with myself. I'm married to somebody who, you know, we, again, he, we joke, Lair grew up with an outhouse. It's, you know, nobody was rolling in it, either one of us, right? But I've responded differently than him. You know, he has, seems, appears to have like a lot of faith, you know, it's like, and both of us are very big about not being cheap. There's nothing worse than like, if we've all had cheap friends or it's just, it's like a not, and it's just not a great trade. It's awful. But I always say he's like has a faith response to money. And I'm trying to balance between, um, you know, yes, let's have a fluid response. It, like mm -hmm. it's just energy. You know, people talk about money being energy. And I go, hey, I don't want to worry about a dollar. And I've heard you talk about this. I want to worry about a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. I don't want to talk about one dollar or ten dollars. Yeah. And so do you think also in your experience, though, because it is scary in a way where you're asking what we're asking people to do is go, hey, listen, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, too, in putting on these different lenses about, um, you know, per, we, you know, treating ourselves nicely or or making those spending a couple hundred bucks for conveniences. But that somehow when you're in this rigid, you know, belief system that that's where you end up getting stuck because you can't flow outside of it. Do you you know, we see people that are entrepreneurs. Um, and th just their their idea about money or, or not being afraid of like, I might blow up. Like I may not end up with anything, but I'm, I'll just, I can deal with it. You well, know, it's, like, it's types, I don't know. What, how do you, how would you address somebody? Maybe that's lived 25, 30 years already. They've bought their parents' ideology and now they're trying to break out of that. 
um, that, you, you know, what I always say to myself, what would be the worst thing that happened? Like, sometimes I have to go there. Let's take, let's take this. Intuitively, people already understand that there are other money lenses besides cost. You know how? Because if I ask any parent on the planet, what type of food or diapers do you buy for your baby? At least in America, I can guarantee you they are not primarily focusing only on cost. Now, cost may be relevant depending on your socioeconomic status, but they're not only generic diapers, generic baby food, generic everything, the cheapest. No, if you ask them, why are you paying for Pampers? I mean, there's a cheaper brand out there. Well, the answer is my baby gets a rash or that's what my mom or dad got for me. And so we intuitively understand with children that there are things we would pay more for. And I remember this amazing story of mine. I, uh, I was teaching some of my students at I Will Teach You To Be Rich about these different money lenses. And you're right, people find it difficult to get away from cost only. They get afraid, ooh, if, if I go to that restaurant once, then I'm gonna trip and fall and eat at a three-star Michelin restaurant every night. And what they're really demonstrating there is a lack of trust in themselves, right? I trust that I can buy a beautiful jacket or a nice dinner out with friends. And I can trust that I appreciate it as a one-time thing, but I don't have to go there every night, fine. So this woman was talking to us and sharing that she found it really difficult to start adopting different frames beyond cost. And then suddenly her daughter, who's developmentally disabled, they decided to go to Disneyland. And she said it made intuitive sense to her. She said, I paid for the extra pass, the VIP. We didn't have to wait in lines. I could see my daughter smiling and loving her day at this theme park. And she said, it all made sense to me. So if you want to start by changing your view or your money lens and you want to start with someone else, I think that's great. Ultimately, though, it's a common mistake that people uh, only change their money dial or their money lens for others and they don't think about themselves. No, I want you thinking about yourself. I want to know what do you spend extravagantly on? What are you going to spend a little more on? And once you start there, then we can talk about what do you not care about? And if you like, I can share my own examples from my own life. What I spend extravagantly on, what do I cut costs mercilessly on as well? I like your, your 10 rules and I want to, I want to go there, but can you maybe just bring attention, a highlight for people so that when they're thinking about this idea, what are the lenses? I mean, there's convenience and security experience, all these things, maybe mm -hmm. just share that because then, and you sort of encourage people to at least, you know, use these annually like don't just yeah. be drilling down on cost but um you know use put on different lenses you know at some point throughout your year yeah play different notes don't be a one note player so you have cost i'm not going to talk about cost because all you guys know about cost that's all yeah. you live and breathe all day oh how much does it cost i don't it's boring let's talk about something else let's talk about convenience why do i have an amazing executive assistant um, why do, that's my, my sort of view on the world. I love convenience. It makes me so happy. Like the, the power could go out. I could go blind and I can open up my fridge. I still know exactly where every meal is, where everything is. I know I sound like a psycho, but that's what gives me joy. Then we have security. We talked about security. It's not just a car. It can be, um, 
the comfort and security of knowing if I take my parents to this restaurant, we're going to get seated. We're not going to have a teenager screaming in the corner. We're going to be served and treated appropriately. That's security. Okay. And I'm willing to pay a little bit more for that for my parents. For me, for me I don't care. For me, teenagers don't scream. They are only mean to their parents. It's the, oh, it's the two-year-olds. <laughs> Good kidding. point. I'm kidding. Good point. Um, okay. okay so so we, have, yeah. we have results and speed. We talked about a personal trainer, but you can also imagine learning Spanish. You want to learn a different language? You could do it on your own, or you could hire a tutor and learn faster and better. Right. That's an example where sometimes I think people cheap out a little bit. Is it important to you? Be honest. Is something important to you? If not, that's fine. But if it is, are you willing to pay a little bit more for better speed, better results? It's a better experience, which is another one. I wish I have a fantasy that I could take someone who made money recently and take them out in New York or San Francisco or LA and show them the different ways that people spend money. Because when I was 20 years old, I would get on a plane and I would walk past the people in first and business class and I would scoff. I would say, so stupid. We're all going to the same place. Why would they pay four times more? <laughs> Suckers. I wish I had stopped being so judgmental and instead say, wow, if they can afford it, what do they know that I don't? What are they getting out of this that I don't understand? And truthfully, there are certain things to this day I don't understand. For example, I don't really value nice wine. So you could give me a $1,000 bottle or a $30 bottle. It's all the same to me. I, don't, I haven't developed the palate or the interest in it. Right. But having now flown a lot, I, in fact, I value it so much that I added that as one of my 10 money rules. Any flight over four hours business class. So that's a money lens, which is experience, delight. And then, you know, there's so many others, which you can just search Ramit Sethi money lenses and you'll see. You, uh, I think that's an important thing. What you said is, is as you go through life to go from, you know, disparaging people for what they're doing and to put that to a curiosity, like, I wonder why they're doing that or what are they getting from that? So I, I think that that's important because it's, it's a fascinating thing. We're all striving and hoping to get as much money as we can in certain ways, even if it's just to say, Hey, uh, eat healthier food care for my family, uh, care for my extended family, whatever that is. But then there's this weird other, you know, narrative around cash, which is like shame and guilt and all these things. And, and, um, and it's depicted always as negative and bad. And, and so I well, thought- that's one of the reasons I, I'm glad you said that because in, in our country, we love rich people who purport to be poor. So we love the story of Warren Buffett living in his same house since 1969. Oh, hey guys, let's put aside the fact that he has a private jet. Oh no, that's not relevant. But we love, he's such a homely guy, homey guy. Guys, get real. If people have money, the implication in our country is that um, we, we love the rich. We love celebrities. But... If you're rich, you had to step on a lot of people to get there. And one of the things that I have tried to demonstrate in my book and in my life, my political donations, the way that I live and travel is, no, you can actually make a considerable amount of money and be a good person. You can donate charitably. You do not have to cover yourself in emeralds if you don't want to, right? For example, um, I'll tell you an example of what I spend on and what I don't. Yep. I love to travel. I take my wife and I go, we go for six weeks every year. We love that. We take our family. So on our honeymoon, for example, we took our parents to the first part of it because we want those experiences. But on the other hand, until recently, I had a seven-year-old computer, which I was running my entire business off of. 
My car is almost 20 years old. I just don't care. It's a nice car. It's fine. It's Honda. Indians love Hondas and Toyotas. It's great. But like, that's it. I, it it's not important to me. But for the things that I do value, clothes, um, travel, or be, if my friend is running one of those charity fundraisers, I'm the first donor and I'm donating more than they're asking for. These are the kinds of money rules that I want everyone to develop. So I want to ask you listening, what are your five to 10 money rules? And when I ask people this question, the answers are really, I'll read you some of mine in a second, but the answers are so interesting. They usually start by saying something like this. Um, uh, don't spend on anything wasteful. Uh, don't go anywhere I don't need to go. And they, they start, no, no, don't, don't, can't, can't, won't, won't. It's all negativity. It's not anything to my money rules. Yes. Or some of mine. Save 10%, invest at least 20% of gross annual income. Okay, fine. That's like a nice financial one. Yeah. But how about some of these other ones? Never question spending money on books, appetizers, health, or donating to a friend's charity fundraiser. Business class on flights over four hours. Buy the best and keep it as long as possible. Wait, I want to stop you because I think you two that are you've already said that are really important. Books, you know, food, things like this. These, this is the, the color that makes our life. I don't, in some ways it's like, how did we get so staunch? And um, the other thing that you said is my husband always says cry once. He's like, buy the thing that's the best, cry one time and keep it. Because what happens is, let's say you're, you're doing something or you know building a home or whatever, you go, well, that one's like 30% cheaper, but there's a reason for that. So I think this, this cry once and buy the best and keep it for a long time, because that's actually anti, you know, American, it's like, how much can I get for how little? Yeah, I hate that. That bites you in your butt in such a real way. So, okay, I cut you off. Go yeah. ahead. And that's number six, buy it, buy the best and keep it as long as possible. Okay. So, you know, that's why I have an 18 or whatever year old car. It's a good car. It's fine. But but I keep it for a long time. Similarly, um, the clothes that I buy, yeah, they're expensive. But I'm keeping those things for years and years and treasuring them, right? Really taking care of it. A couple more I want to highlight. Well, and treasuring and enjoying it. We don't, I have to, I am very um, guilty of this, placing the high value in enjoyment. Yeah. You know, we, we're, we've, I don't know how is it, you know, is it how, where we established that it was like bad enjoyment is bad. It, it's not bad. No, m- money is meant to be enjoyed. Money, a rich life is lived outside the spreadsheet. I don't want any of these technical nerds writing me and telling me, oh, my Monte Carlo simulation and cell C2 told, I don't care. That's easy. A much harder part is to say, you know what? I've set up a few simple, powerful rules. I've used the I will teach you to be rich system to automate my money, spending less than one hour per month. And now, whether it is something as small as I'm gonna buy an appetizer, guilt-free, or whether it's something as large as I'm going to build my own house and really customize every detail of it. It could be one could be $10, one could be 10 million. But you choose. It's your rich life, not mine. So a couple other things I want to highlight here on rules. Um, earn enough to work only with people I respect and like. Now, I run my own company, but you could do the same if you're working at a company. If you're earning and investing and saving enough that you do that you choose where you want to work that's incredibly powerful 
And number 10, marry the right person. Now this one, you know, it's interesting. People, a lot of times they write me about that one. How's that a financial decision? Ramit, you're so cold and transactional. <laughs> I don't think so. I think uh, your partner, whether you're married or in any kind of relationship, is incredibly influential on your finances. And that means finding someone who's aligned uh, or at least someone who can grow with you. And, you know, I'm very fortunate. My wife and I, although we came from uh, a different perspective with money, right? I had been an entrepreneur already for almost 20 years, but we both were growth oriented. And how did you meet Cassandra? Like, how does, how did you cross paths? Uh, we met uh, in New York at a friend's party. And um, I could, I could tell that she was from California. She had a California vibe to her. And it's very recognizable, you know, um, especially in New York, it's very recognizable. And so, you know, I went over and talked to her and, um, you know, we just got to know each other and um, we met each other's families. And uh, eventually, you know, when we got married, what was awesome, that was really our first big joint project together, like big, because we had an Indian Mexican wedding with the food and the broth and everything, right? All the stuff you can imagine. And um, yeah, we just had a, we had a lot of joy in bringing our cultures together through food and rituals and families. It was awesome. And then she created her own business uh, in New York and in uh, Los Angeles, you know, teaching people how to, you know, basically, I don't want to say dress themselves, but kind of how to navigate some of these professional obstacles. Yeah, she's um, a personal stylist. Yeah, which is, so this, the good for you. Um, yeah, it was, I, that was not why I uh, originally no, no, I'm saying, it's, pursued her, but yes. Bonus, but she was in a corporate job and then went off into her, into her own. And were you, you know, was she doing that before you met her? Or did you, do you think that, uh, you know, connecting with you, Maybe inspired that. Um, maybe inspired, uh, yeah. but I was very careful when I met her to know that in my day job at I Will Teach You To Be Rich, I'm a teacher and I teach my students and that's what they come to me for. But with my partner, I'm not that. And so I think she saw me and she saw what entrepreneurship can be like, uh, but she made her own decision. And I, I always reminded myself, Ramit, shut your mouth. Don't offer advice unless it's asked. Yeah. And, and that turned out to be really great because, you know, any entrepreneur needs to make their own mistakes. They need to find their own way. And of course, when they are ready, they ask for help. And that was exactly what happened. So I think inspired is a great word. I'm, uh, I'm grateful hearing that from you. I hope I inspired her, but she ran her own business and made her own decisions. We're going to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors and get right back to the show. We all know that really one of the big pillars for being healthy is eating well. And sometimes that's easier than others. And I've talked a lot about this company and they have a wonderful offer for you today. And they are called Sakara. And Sakara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness. However, they do believe that it starts with what you eat and they make it really easy. I know a lot of us are trying to add more plant-based nutrition into our daily lives and either we've run out of ideas or we're wearing a lot of hats and we're at home or quite frankly, like I'm, I get sick of my cooking and I've been cooking more than ever. And so the, this idea of having, you know, ready to eat meals, organic, 
and they're made from powerful plant-based ingredients and they're designed, you know, not only to taste incredible, but to boost your energy and even improve your digestion. And it's not about suffering through. These are, you know, these menus are creative. They're chef crafted, ready to eat breakfast, lunches, and dinners. And it changes weekly so you won't get bored. And it delivers fresh to your door anywhere in the U.S. So maybe you just need that extra support right now. Maybe you're trying to make a change. Maybe you just, you know, you want to just do something different. Well, Sakara has that for you. And along with delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. So you can experience the transformative power of plants with their best-selling metabolism super powder. It's made with organic raw cacao. It works, like we talked about, to boost your energy, eliminate bloating, minimize sugar cravings. That's a big one. I'm always trying to figure out how to get less, to want sugar less and also to you know, get it out of my diet. And this, you know, overall, it reduces fatigue. So right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to Sakara, that's S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash Gabby Reese, or just enter the code Gabby Reese at checkout. That's G-A-B-B-Y-R-E-E-C-E. And remember that is Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com. And you can do slash Gabby Reese or go ahead and punch in Gabby Reese at checkout for 20% off your first order. What I love about this too, is they deliver it fresh anywhere in the US. You can trust the ingredients. They thought about it. All the meals are different. They taste great and they really do support you. But sometimes, you know, it's like having friends like this and you've known this from when you went to school and you know, you were studying psychology and technology at Stanford. Sometimes just looking to your left or right and especially I always call it pillow talk. You know, it's like when you lean over and that partner's there, just the way that they're approaching it can give you the inspiration and courage or audacity to be like, it seems possible. A lot of people are doing it. And this guy that I'm sleeping next to, who I know really well, the flaws and the, and the great attributes, he's pulling it off. Yeah. I think that that is really a really powerful resource, whether we know it or not. And, and the joke is like, you're smart about not coaching. My husband and I say an expert, somebody who lives a mile away, you know, like your <laughs> other friends that are in the field, maybe that you're in could go, you know, Cassandra, you should do that. Oh, that's an amazing idea. And it's yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really funny. I, I love what you said about the pillow talk, because I think uh, this, this goes back to that old Jim Rohn quote about you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And, you know, I remember um, there was a New York Times article about this male model who's a male fitness model and he's obviously in very good shape. And they asked him, what do you do on a weekend? You know, and he, he sort of, they tracked him for a weekend and you're looking at this guy and you're saying, wow, this guy's in incredible shape. And then you follow along. What does he do? He, he goes, Oh, I wake up. I wake up on Saturdays a little late about seven and I go for a five mile run and then I meet my friends. You know, I've already, uh, I already had a light breakfast, so I, I keep it pretty light. And then I go to train for an hour and a half. Da, 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 da. And he's just talking about all this stuff. It just comes naturally to him. But you start to put the pieces together. Oh, it's not just his genetics. This guy is doing a series of things, some of them unconscious, to look like that. And so for us to be able to understand those secret clues, whether it's entrepreneurs, athletes, models, whoever it may be, people who make it to a very high level do not get there by accident. 
Maybe right. at the beginning, but you don't trip and fall and become a model or trip and fall and become a professional athlete. You know that it takes a series of unconscious and unconscious behaviors. And so to be able to understand that, whether you call it pillow talk or, or subtle sense of success, if you can surround yourself with those people, you start to pick up on the things that they do. It's fascinating. It is. And, and what people have to remember is no matter who you are, whatever you're pursuing, and listen, it could be somebody who is a stay-at-home mom, but they have an idea for something, or they just even want to recruit or organize something in their community. It's all scary, right? Like you want to be an entrepreneur and start a business. You want to create a product. You want to gather a bunch of people in your neighborhood. It's all scary, but that it's doable. And it's so helpful when you see people um, that have put that practice, because that's the other, I always think that scaffolding is actually probably more important than your your natural talents. Yeah. You know what? And I'm glad you brought up parenting because that's a great example too. So every one of us knows parents who we think are great parents and parents whose maybe their kids are not what we might define as great. And so if we study the best, I have a philosophy, study the best. You study what great parents are doing. And again, they have a series of conscious and unconscious things they do which result in the type of household they create. I'm going to give you an example. My sister, um, I watched one day as my nephew, who at the time was, I don't know, three or four, and she'd made some dinner for him. Now, if we think about how come Indian people love spicy food, right? Is it genetics? I don't know, but we love it. Well, okay, I think so it's also because when you have to cover food that maybe is not um, good, I think it started maybe. from having to navigate, um, if you look at a lot of cultures where if the food's right on the line, maybe, or they're not always having this abundance, you're using spice um, to navigate around that. And then now- yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, the, the food that, that I've had in India and other places is, is quite good, but there's a cultural difference of, um, we like spice versus, you know, you might meet a lot of people who are like, oh, like black pepper, that's spicy. So I'm watching my three or four year old nephew and he starts eating this food that my sister made and he goes, mommy, it's spicy. And so, you know what my sister does? She it's says, <laughs> drink your water. And that was it. So she's normalizing the fact that spice is normal. Go ahead, slow it down, have some water. She's not saying, oh my God, take it away. No, because we're all going to eat spicy food. That's what we do as a family. Think about that subtle clue. Think about what might happen in a different household where spice isn't as normal or valued. They would rush in, take the food away and say, oh, I'm so sorry. But that's not a cultural value for what my sister was doing. I thought that was so interesting. And if you think about any parents you admire, they probably do 50 of those things unconsciously every day to create the kind of values that they want in their family. Yes. And I think, you know, modeling, I have three daughters. M modeling is, is number one you know, that's a form of it. But I will, I will say this, that I have learned on this journey of parenthood, which um, like if you maybe came from a, a very disciplined culture, like an Indian culture, we're also, um, for example, the honoring of the parents is, is sort of deeply instilled a lot of Asian cultures. Um, there's also like every once in a while, what you'll see too, that's interesting and very humbling as a parent is when you are non-compliant. Try that. 
like you're non-compliant. Both my husband and I were raised without blueprints. We didn't have, like, you have a beautiful blue, blueprint. Your parents, um, you know, your mom was a teacher, like that's a strong family unit. There's a very interesting thing that happens um, when you are raised without a blueprint and it's almost like not in your uh, DNA. And then you're trying to parent those non-compliant people. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. That's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh. it, you're coming from a place of not having a roadmap and then you're trying to create it while you're kind of piloting the plane. Yeah. That's incredibly challenging. Yeah. And your kids also have some of your genetics, which is like F off. And so um, then you start clinging to trying to be the best model you can be and just hope for the best. I mean, it's, you know, I'm always in awe of families that I'm like, that's a, that's amazing. So I want to I want to go over um, and you know maybe we can brass tax it for a minute and then I want to revisit um, just some things about your personal practice because I think that that's the most compelling. Um, first of all, do you think you were a teacher because your mom was a teacher? Because I think teachers are like it's like coaches. It's like they really get off on watching other people thrive and create environments for them to you know sort of discover their best selves. I think teachers are, they're born, but do you think your mom impacted that in you? It's a very interesting question. Um, we do have a history of teachers or educators in our family. That's interesting. Education is highly valued. I, I remember um, being young and although my parents did not have a lot of money, if there was anything school related, they would somehow find it. And so we were taught through modeling and other ways that education is the absolute pinnacle of what you can achieve. And then I think, um, you know, personally, I always felt like I didn't quite understand things that others got intuitively. Uh, for example, working out, you know, I'm seeing these friends of mine when I was a teenager or early twenties, they're like ripped. And I'm like, where'd you learn this? I, nobody taught me. My dad was not teaching me to deadlift. But that's, but that's not your culture. See, exactly. Exactly. I was crushing spelling bees, but I was not learning about squats. Okay. It wasn't in the conversation. And so I'm like, was I absent the day they taught, you know, that? And so what became started as a source of frustration, I just feel like I just don't get this that other people seem to naturally get. Then I decided to try to learn it. And when you learn something new, whether it's fitness or money, it's so confusing. You don't know where to start. You don't know who's preying on you. You don't know if the advice is good or bad. But what I found was that I really love uh, deciphering it, breaking the puzzle down. And once I figured it out, then I started to really love teaching other people because I don't want them to have to go through all the stuff I did when I was learning about investing, all the nonsense you have to go through and all the lies, same with fitness, et cetera. And so, yes, that is the joy I get. And then watching people, the students of mine who start off coming to me saying, you know, you know these very $3 questions. They, okay. oh, what, what bank account should I use? And I say, okay, I'll tell you the answer, but let's really think about $30,000 questions. And after a while, they engage with the IWT system and they start investing and, you know, they'll write me a year or two later. Oh my God, all my debt's gone. I have $36,000 in an investment account. And I just used your negotiation advice to negotiate a $12,000 salary increase. Like that person is on their path to living a rich life and bringing everyone around them with them. Yeah. 
And you you talk a lot about getting people to pull back from that micro, you know, view and get into the macro and and really, you know, the bigger landscape. Can you um, break down? I uh, was looking at the your you know your pyramid of investing options and and a lot of it. I'll be honest with you if it was possible to break some of it down in layman terms, because you talk about, you know, stocks and bonds at the bottom, um, index funds and mutual funds, and then, um, you know, target date, investing in target date funds. Yeah. For a lot of people who are listening to this, I think that this gets daunting, right? Like you have these buckets and they're broken down into percentages, whether it's fixed costs, investments, savings, things like that. But maybe you could just run us through, if I'm somebody- yeah. There's different scenarios. So let's say I'm not an entrepreneur. I have a fixed salary, give or take, maybe a bonus. Um, and I'm either, maybe you could give me two scenarios. I'm a younger person who doesn't have a lo lot of responsibility. And maybe I'm a person who's looking to, maybe I have, I'm, I do have now responsibilities and I'm sort of looking to expand my financial vernacular. How do you, how does someone do that? Let's first start off with what people think that investing and finance is about. And guys, this drives me crazy because this is not the truth. They think that um, first to save money, you have to be genetically gifted that, ooh, I'm a saver and I'm not. That's not true. It's just a skill, just like riding a bike. Anyone can learn it. In fact, the best type of savings is one that's completely automatic and you don't even think about it. Right. I don't think about my savings. I don't try harder. It has nothing to do with willpower. It's automatic. I don't ever think about it. Investing, people think, is sitting in front of a dark room with 10 monitors, black background, green letters, and uh, you know, swiping like minority report and picking stocks through some PE ratio bullshit. It's not true. Okay. Here's what actual saving and investing looks like for me. I set a few rules in my life like save 10%, invest 20% minimum. Simple. And by the way, you don't have to come up with those on your own. You can just use mine and adapt them for yourself. Second, I built a system that does this automatically. So imagine you get paid. You're working a nine to five job. You get paid on the first of the month. The money goes into your checking account, like your email inbox. And from there, it filters out to where it needs to go. Some of it goes... Um, to your 401k or your Roth IRA. Those are investment accounts. It just happens automatically. You don't have to do a thing. Some of it goes to your savings account. Guess what you're doing with that savings account? You're saving up for that beautiful trip you're going to take to Italy with your family. And you actually know exactly how many months until you can pay for it. And yes, you are going to splurge for the nice hotel room because you've planned it. And finally, some of that goes to your guilt-free spending. That's the money that you can use for the, the restaurant you want to go to, whatever it may be. Your bills are all paid automatically, right? If you have student loans, paid. So you can see the way I'm talking here. It's not a battle that so many of us feel when we think about money. So many of us sit and look at our these invoices that come in, these bills, and we just go, oh my God, I guess I spent that much last month. But this approach, the IWT systems approach, is you have an overall system. The money goes in automatically. And yes, you can always monitor it and check it, but it's just doing the right thing by default. And that's the kind of life I want to lead. By default, good things are happening. Perfect. I don't want by default bad things to happen. I want by default good things to happen. That's how we architect the system. Now, if, if uh, let's say, 
you're an entrepreneur, like I'm an entrepreneur, you are, you're sort of both, you know, you have dual things happening. A lot of times with an entrepreneur, right? You, I've had many times I was telling you how long it took me to build this house because I was putting money back into our business. Um, and you, you know, you do that for five years or more, depending on what's going on. Do you think entrepreneurs, they're living in sort of a different financial, uh, paradigm because it's like, you know, it isn't set. Do you, do you think there's sort of room for in a way you're willing to fly a little bit more by the seat of your pants because that's what you have to do for that period of time? Well, let's talk about the similarities and differences. So whether you are an entrepreneur or you have a nine to five job, um, one good thing to do is to build an asset. And an asset is something that can produce income for you while you're sleeping, traveling, et cetera. Now, you know, a lot of people, they've been told that an asset, the only asset you can do is buy real estate, which is certainly an asset sometimes, or uh, start a company. But guess what? The most common asset in America is something that any nine to five employee can have, which is a 401k or an IRA. So even if you are working a nine to five, you can build an asset that eventually will actually pay you more than your salary. So that's part one. Now, what are the differences? Well, nine to five, you kind of know what you're going to make roughly. Entrepreneurs, I know many of my students who take our earnable business program, and they might make $3,000 one month and $35,000 the next month. Okay, so how the hell do you plan for that? Well, let me tell you the answer. You basically want to simulate a nine to five. So in sh- I cover this in the book in detail, but in short, when you have extra, you want to put it in a reserve account. And when you don't make the big bucks, you can draw out of that reserve. Over time, you can create that reserve account to basically be about three to six months. And then that is basically your buffer. So when things are good, you can add to it. When things are not, you can take from it. But you are now basically simulating a nine to five job and you can pay yourself a stable salary. Once you do that, all your systems flow. It's like poetry. It's like ballet. It's beautiful. And now you are basically getting a regular salary every month. We're going to do a quick thank you to one of our sponsors and get right back to the show. Talking about Laird Superfood is probably one of the easiest ads I can do because I watched my husband drink coffee for 20 something years. And then in 2015, um, he and a friend of ours created by accident, a vegan plant-based coffee and creamer business. And now we've got tons of other products. We have hydrate products and greens and plant-based protein that doesn't upset your stomach. Imagine that. The taste is amazing. Trust me. I did all the taste tests in room temperature water. So we know how good this stuff is. We've got cacao creamer, one of my personal favorites. If you're trying to avoid sugar, unsweetened creamers. Remember, everything is vegan. It's plant-based, easy to use. And so if you want to get a discount today, and try Laird Superfood, all you do is go to LairdSuperfood.com. That's L-A-I-R-D-S-U-P-E-R-F-O-O-D.com, LairdSuperfood.com. And if you punch in Gabby2021 at checkout, you will receive a 20% savings. This product is something that I use pretty much every day in my coffee. We even have matcha. So let's say you're not a coffee drinker. You like chai, you like matcha. We really tried to bring you the best tasting 
with the highest quality ingredients, no artificial flavorings, um, and at the most reasonable price that we could. So if you've been wondering about Laird Superfood or you want to stock up on Laird Superfood, go ahead and head to LairdSuperfood.com and get your savings with discount code GABBY, G-A-B-B-Y, 2021. I really appreciate the way that you have used systemizing and technology to enhance the human experience around money because it's a it, it's an interesting blend. And um, I think a lot of us are one or the other. Yeah. So it's like, um, okay, so, I, you know, We've been in, in COVID. A lot of people are, are making transitions from, from jobs. And, and um, I, I've often said, like, in some ways, it feels like the time to, we're being forced off the rails a bit, which can be a great thing, even though it's wildly uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, you know, in your mind, if you had someone who was 40 and they sort of said, hey, I was going to the office and I didn't like that job anyway, this would be my time. Um, and I, I, and I liken it also to a divorced person. These are very interesting financial positions. I'd, I'd, if someone came to you in either one of these positions, you know, what would be that first thread? Because again, these are, these are maybe people a little older, so they're not a cut. They don't actually know what's out there. You're, you're, you have your finger on the pulse on technology and what's out there and all these systems that are available. What, what would you just give them as a common thread? And, and I know you have a, you know, a, a website, uh, www.iwillteachyoutobberich.com, and I'm sure there's a lot there. But maybe you could just give us one, um, you know, thread on thinking because when you're fear-based, you can't get, you can't get there. Yeah. Well, it's natural that people make trans financial decisions when they have a life transition. And those life transitions tend to be getting married, having kids, getting divorced, buying a house, turning 40, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a few of them. And they're very predictive of people getting engaged. Let me put it this way. Very few people are going to the bookstore and buying a random book on personal finance just because. I love those people. They're my favorites. But most people are, are waiting until something happens and then they come, oh, Ramit, I will teach you to be rich, et cetera. So let's say you're in that situation. You're thinking, you know what? I don't want to go back to a job with a commute anymore. I just, I've gotten used to waking up having a leisurely morning, and I don't want to face an hour and a half of traffic every day. Okay, great. I want to give everybody a framework that I'm going to pull out of one of our programs. We have a program called Find Your Dream Job. This is the one where we teach people how to find a new job. We teach them how to negotiate substantial raises, often between $10,000 to $80,000 of a salary increase, work from home, etc. So in this program, one of the frameworks that we teach is the different types of personalities of people when they're looking for a job. Think about it. How can you expect to get career advice if you are somebody going for a $400,000 a year executive tech job, or if you are a school teacher looking to transition, right? Those the advice is completely different. So I'm going to share three career seasons for everyone. I want you to listen up and Think about which one you are. Start off with the first one called growth. This is a career season called growth. When I was in my early 20s, I wanted to make more money. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to get promoted. I was willing to work 60, 70 hours a week. Just give me everything you got. I'm here. I want to grow. 
And for some of us listening, that's us, right? I want more, more responsibility, more money, more all of it. That's growth. What happens to a lot of people, what happened to me is as you get older, oftentimes you might um, get married or be in some kind of relationship. You might have children and you might say, you know what? I think I want to slow down. I still want to be good at my job, but maybe I like to uh, pick up my son from school at 3 p.m. every day. Or maybe I like skiing and I want to ski four weeks a year. Fine. That's the career season called lifestyle, right? It's not, you would not be as interested in companies where you have to work 70 hours a week anymore. Okay. And then finally, we have a third career season called reinvention. And you can just imagine the lawyer who says, I'm sick of this. I want to be a beekeeper. What, what do I do? Do I have any transferable skills? What does the resume even look like? So for everybody listening, think which career season reflects you and don't try to choose two. That's a common mistake. Pick one. Are you in growth? If so, you're going to look for companies where there's frequent promotion, where they talk about how hard you're going to work, but how you're going to be rewarded for it. That's growth. Lifestyle. They're going to talk about work-life balance. They're also going to have, you know, other types of human capital benefits for you and a good job that you value. Finally, reinvention. You're going to want to find people who have made a similar transition cross industry. That's a good start. And then we can show you all the rest in the dream job program. I really appreciate that because I think a lot of people either starting out or like, I don't know what I'm good at, or they get sort of, they've churned through a bit of life and now they're kind of like, yeah, I'm ready to pivot. And it's just trying to, you know, get that help and, and do that realistically, because it's like one thing to be like, I'm going to make a change. Well, what the, what does that mean? You know, so much of life and so much of what we teach at I will teach you be rich is okay. I've arrived here at this point in life. Now what? Yep. And when you arrive at this point, whether it's I'm 40 and I realize I need to start saving or investing something, or I'm 35 and I'm kind of sick of this job and I want to make more and I'm willing to put the work in, but I want to know that I'll get rewarded. When you encounter that, you are so lost. You're so in your head that you start doing this thing we call the I, I, I syndrome. Well, I, I don't want that kind of job and I wouldn't want to do that, but I think I want this and I like to help people or I don't want investing. I'm scared of it. I, I, I. And you're in your head, you're spinning. And so what we do is we show you models. Here is exactly the percent that you should be saving. Here's exactly the percent that you should be investing. Here are stories of people just like you. Here's what they did and look at what happened. Here are the mistakes to look out for. This is the I will teach you to be rich way, which is highly specific and tactical, but always, always accounting for the human psychology element. So Ramit, I want to just kind of finish up talking about you because you have a lot of energy. You, you're clearly very healthy. Um, you're, you're not doing all of this. Um, if you, if you weren't, is there, is there a practice that you have in place that really is supporting you on your mission, whether it's in your, you know, in your relationship with your wife or your work output, um, maybe just share some that practice. Yeah. Um, I train, um, few times a week. I work out with a trainer. Um, I'm pretty methodical about what I eat. So I um, count my macros and all of that. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, I am like, I'm eating the same thing every single day. 
Now, when I go mean? out- wait, wait a second. Like, okay, what are you eating? Like, what gives me, when you say you mean uh, X amount of, you know, high level protein and vegetables yeah. and carbs and then yeah. rotating that? Yeah, but basically I have a formula. So like, I okay, here's what I like. I like yogurt. I like honey. I like almonds, blueberries, et cetera. And then depending on what I'm doing and what I'm doing with my trainer, am I putting on mass? Am I cutting? Then I'll just vary the amount. So, because the, and the reason for this is I don't want to have to think every day, what am I eating? What, you know, all these different things. No, it's just straightforward. And it's something I like. Now, with that said, um, I love knowing that 95 or 99% of the time I have a plan. I'm eating. I don't have to think about it. But then when I go out for tacos or when I go out with a friend and we're like, oh, let's eat. It's, it's on, right? I'm not ever feeling guilty I'm not worrying about, oh, like, should I order this or should I order two appetizers? Because I know that 95% of the time I'm on plan and I don't have to think about it, then I can truly enjoy when I am eating something special with my wife or friends. Do you, are you getting enough, like, how's your sleep? Sleep is good. I sleep seven to eight hours a night. Um, usually wake up without an alarm clock. Mm -hmm. um, sleep is good. You know, someone would see you and and uh, think, well, this he he really can figure things out and organize things. And you obviously, you know, you've mentioned your sister and your parents, and like you, you've come from a, a you know a nice family. That's what I call a nice family. When people say good family, I don't mean the, like the Duponts. I mean like people that are <laughs> together, you know, and you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thriving as human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you? Does anything scare you? Like, do you? Is anything make you at night kind of go? I, I get. It, I'm concerned about that. Or is you, you know? Are there things out there that you you can't un, you haven't unraveled and you haven't completely figured out that you're navigating? You know, I never understood that question until a few years ago, because yeah, because you got I older. <laughs> well, I got, yeah, and I, I you're right, and I encountered things that I had never encountered. So I used to take it literally which was like, what do you mean keep me up? I sleep great. You know, I close my eyes and I'm asleep. But what happened was our company went through a tough time, a really tough time. And believe it or not, I actually started to not be able to sleep. I started to uh, have trouble going to sleep. I would wake up gasping for air. And it and you know, I'm a pretty calm guy. My dad is also very calm. Nothing really phases me. And so my identity that I've created is, you know, I'm just this calm guy. It's fine. And I found myself waking up really not having good sleep, really stressed out. And I actually went to see a doctor and they checked into my uh, nose and throat and all that. And they're like, Oh, uh, everything looks physiologically fine. Are you under any stress? And I laughed because I was under a huge amount of stress. And so that was the first time. And I was in my thirties. That was the first time where I realized under true stress, anybody's body will react. And it was a really humbling moment for me because number one, my identity was just this cool cucumber. But what I realized was, you know what? Maybe I actually had never faced something that challenged me in that way. I, I faced a multi-million dollar business. I faced all this other stuff, but not this. And, um, and so that, I have to say that was really hard. It was, it was hard for me, hard for my team, uh, some of whom we had to let go at that time. 
and hard, humbling to realize, wow, I might have been wrong about something my entire life. So um, mm. now I think I have a better understanding of your question, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Sometimes it literally keeps you up like it kept me up. And sometimes it's just this low level fear. You know, am I doing the right thing? Or in my case, you know, um, is my team feeling rewarded? Are they feeling recognized? Uh, am I doing the same thing with my wife and family? And, th you know, those are the things I wouldn't say they keep me up at night, but but they are things that absolutely need to be paid attention to a lot. And, you know, you talk about adapting in your finance life, like when you're in different seasons of your life. And do you find now, I mean, because, you know, life is messy and, and people who tend to systematize things and also come from nice environments, they, they are further away from the mess. Like you're yes. further away from the mess, right? In a great way. Congratulations. Um, but then I think, I feel like once you live long enough, you start to understand, like, even within that is that constant adapting, like yes. adapting within your business, adapting within your relationship. Um, I don't know if you're ever going to, if you, if the two of you are going to choose to have children or not, that's a whole other level um, of organization and adapting. But I, I was just curious because when I see people like you, I'm like, Oh my God, what's it like to have it all, you know, sort of. <laughs> no, but I'll, you know what? I'll tell you what, I have a friend of mine who runs a business and we talk a lot about our respective businesses. And she said something to me. She said, um, we've been on life support for like seven years. And, <laughs> and at first, when she first told me that I was like mortified because I'm like, that, that sounds horrible. Like every week to be wondering if you're going to make payroll. But then when our business underwent problems, I actually realized that her business is resilient because she's had to face so many challenges. And our business, which had been really coasting along beautifully, we'd faced adversity, yes, but not this kind of adversity. And we were unprepared for it. And so now I have an appreciation for her. And I think she, you know, she described her business as just this like, like nothing can kill us. Like we've seen everything. And again, when I heard that, I was mortified. And now I'm like, oh, that is battle tested, hard won life advice. You can't buy that. So I, I hear what you're saying. Like it must be nice and all that stuff. But I, I do think I have an appreciation for the other side too, which is like, you know what? Sometimes if you're flying a little too high, you need to know what it's like when tough times come because they will come one way or another. That's right. Well, Ramit, I, uh, I so appreciate uh, just your work and your book is I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And your website is www.iwillteachyoutoberich.com. And where else can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Ramit, on Twitter at Ramit. And for those of you who are interested in switching jobs, finding your dream job, getting a huge raise, iwt.com slash podcast DJ iwt.com slash podcast DJ like dream job. And we'll put everything in the notes so people can find it easily. And, um, and finally, if you could just, I heard you say a quote, um, if you could end the podcast with a quote that I heard you say from Dan Kennedy that I think was valuable to you. Um, are you remembering this quote? Yes. Dan Kennedy said, why pay less when you can pay more? What a beautiful reframe of the things that are important to us in life. So if you think about diapers for your baby 
or you think about a beautiful bouquet for your husband or wife or a, a, a dinner out where you take care of everything for a group of friends who have been very close to you. There are these moments in life where we want to ask ourselves, why pay less when you can pay more? Because there are things in our rich life that are worth it. Ramit Sethi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.